entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible to screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're ready. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. This is Dr. Matthew Watto, and I'm going to make this the quickest intro ever. Our guest on this episode of Cashlack Morning Report with the Human Diagnosis Project is Dr. Rezamanesh. He will be solving a case, a clinical case of abdominal pain with some help or maybe with not much help from myself and Dr. Paul Williams. The great Hannah R. Abrams is our moderator for this episode, and we will first, as as we tend to do on the show, spend a little bit of time, um, you know, talking about work work life fit, and uh, you can skip past that if you want to. But as the great Paul Williams says, uh, you'll be a worse person for it. So, without further ado, here is our interview with Dr. Reza Manesh. All right, Hannah, I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Reza, last time we got to know you as a diagnostic reasoning coach and someone who's maybe uh, creative about how you feed lab animals. Uh, so today we thought that we would get some picks of the week from you and then ask you just a, one more get to know you question. So do you have a pick of the week? I do. First of all, thank you so much for having me back on your show. I'm quite excited to be here. Um, the My pick of the week is for Paul. And Paul, I want to recommend a family-friendly Netflix series that you have to watch in your basement at nighttime. It's titled Haunting of Hill House. You'll love it, man. I, I've actually seen it. It's based on the Shirley Jackson book, if I'm not mistaken, though I don't think it hews too, too closely to it. You should try saying family-friendly after saying front of me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard to find stuff that uh, Paul's not aware of in the, in the movie and TV realm. It's excellent, though. It's it's more like it's a punishing domestic drama that has supernatural elements more than a, a haunted house story. I'm not sure uh, if Reza took the same thing away from it or not, but it, it's, it's excellent. It was beautifully done. It was done so well. It's one of my favorite shows. Highly recommend it. But don't watch it with your kids. That's uh, <laughs> definitely don't recommend that part. <laughs> yeah. So put the ca- put the cats in their kennel. <laughs> they have to learn. <laughs> Who's next for picks of the week? Stuart, you got anything? I'll go. I, I think I may have trumped Paul. Maybe he doesn't know about this movie. It's called China Salesman. So uh, imagine a movie. Uh, so if you've ever wanted to, wanted to see Steven Seagal and Mike Tyson fight in Kung Fu style, okay, I it's saw a the perfect movie for you. Yeah, it's amazing. But it's actually about the Chinese uh, telecom takeover in 3G revolution. Evolution? Revolution? Okay. Devolution? Either way. Yeah, something like that. No one's gonna and somehow it's, it still fine. stars Steven Seagal and Mike Tyson because that just makes sense. Yeah, I think I could stomach that. That sounds like it's solidly within my wheelhouse of watching and enjoying a bad movie from time to time. Uh, Paul, did you have anything? I mean, yeah, sure. Um, well, actually, Stuart, did you watch the movie or just the trailer? <laughs> no, I said I watched the trailer. I think Stuart actually saw the movie. He didn't actually commit to that. So now I, I just want to hear him say in front of God and the curbsiders and everyone that he actually watched this movie from start to finish. This is like the time he uh, he recommended that show that was going to be about a resident with, with autism. And then he had to go back and say after he watched it <laughs> that he actually wouldn't recommend it to anybody. Oh, that was excellent. Yeah. Yeah. I also think he's frozen right now, so that's just uh, another classic. How? 
How convenient. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go on to Hannah's pick of the week. I'm not sure what just happened. Uh-huh. Darn. Um, all right. So my pick of the week is the Bedside Rounds podcast episode, Sherlock. So we talked about the podcast Bedside Rounds before on the show. It's this really awesome podcast. It always makes me kind of just want to jump up and down with excitement, but I'm usually driving, so I don't. Uh, they go through kind of deep dives on medical history topics. And this time they address the question of why does every doctor think that they are Sherlock Holmes and why does every doctor love Sherlock Holmes so much? Uh, so we actually dissect a Sherlock Holmes story uh, and kind of shows how it's an allegory for diagnostic reasoning. And my favorite part, they use this case uh, or rather this short story called um, the case of the speckled band. And the really cool part about it is that, you know, we always think of Sherlock as this kind of bravado, this, you know, this man of wit and, in it, actually, the crux of the case is that he admits that he was wrong initially um, and that he made a diagnostic error based on what the patient had said. Uh, so I think it's a really great role model for kind of diagnostic humility and the whole concept of a cognitive autopsy. Uh, and it's also just a ton of fun. Yeah. So that's a great segue to get into the case, unless anybody else has a pick of the week that they are, they're dying to give here. Yeah. Okay. Well, so first, if you're going to ask Reza... Um, if uh, if you could tell us what got you into clinical reasoning, just to get to know you. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I remember when I was interviewing at UCSF for residency, I was a fourth year medical student and I witnessed something at noon conference that I had not observed before. And that was um, a case presentation to a clinician who was trying to solve the case in real time. So the, the case was unknown to the audience and the discussant, and only known to the presenter. As the presenter presented aliquots of information, the discussant, Gupreet Dhaliwal, was able to share a schema and approach to any type of information that was presented at him. And I recall getting goosebumps while I observed this. And I, I knew something special was happening. I couldn't really appreciate it too much because I was just a fourth-year medical student at the time. And then, um, luckily, I, I matched there for residency, and and as I mentioned on the previous episode, morning report was my favorite hour of the day. And at our at Parnassus Hospital, I sat next to Harry Hollander, uh, our, my program director, and I remember a case in which um, a patient was presented with chronic pancreatitis and gastrointestinal bleeding. And Harry had suggested the diagnosis hemosuccus pancreaticus. It took me a year to learn how to pronounce that word. <laughs> At first, I thought he was saying hocus pocus, and I'm not even a Harry Potter fan. Um, sorry, I don't mean to offend anyone out there who loves Harry <laughs> Potter, which is probably the whole world. Fast, fa fast forward two years. And I'm interviewing for a job at an academic center, and I requested to attend their morning report. And they're presenting a patient who's 52 years old with epigastric pain. And they, they list their differential diagnosis. I raise my hand, and I offer the diagnosis of chronic pancreatitis. And then one of the faculty in the room asks me, well, what do you make of the anemia? And I said, well, it could be explained through hemosuccus pancreaticus. <laughs> And then I saw the presenter's face light up. 
And two minutes later, she said GI was consulted, upper endoscopy performed, and the patient was diagnosed with hemosuccus pancreaticus. So then the chief of medicine came up to me after the conference and said, how did you know? I said, well, I'm a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) I did not say that. Never. I said I had the good fortune of sitting next to Harry Hollander my entire residency. Um, so I think what got me into into clinical reasoning and diagnostic medicine is some amazing role models and just watching them tackle cases one step at a time. Hmm. Well, lucky for you, Reza, you're going to have the chance to uh, inspire a fourth year student tonight with your with your clinical reasoning. I can't. I wish I could say the same for me and my sad, sad group of co- of colleagues here. But we'll do our best. I feel like my clinical reasoning is at the level of a mediocre fourth year medical student. So I, you may inspire me. So, so this case is for Reza, uh, and it was written by Dr. Anand Jagannath, who is an academic hospitalist and assistant professor of clinical medicine at UCSD, and it was edited by Dr. Stephanie Sherman. So we'll have to look out for any other exotic animals. (laughs) So this is the case of a 50-year-old man who presents to the emergency room in San Diego with abdominal pain in January. A little bit about his abdominal pain. It's been going on for four days, and it's diffuse, but mostly in the left lower quadrant. It's cramping, progressively worsening with no change with eating, drinking, or over-the-counter pain meds. And he also tells you that he's had about a 30-pound weight loss in the past two months. Otherwise, he hasn't had any recent travel outside of the San Diego area, and he doesn't have any sick contacts. He does tell you that he had the flu two months ago, and otherwise, his past medical history is significant for hypertension, diabetes with an A1C of 15.8, not on medication, GERD, and active active tobacco use of a half a pack per day for 30 years with chronic cough. Awesome. I'll share my thought process, but um, then I'm going to ask for help from... Matt and Paul, so we can solve this together if that's okay. So the complaint of of abdominal pain we see often. Um, So we all have a general schema to abdominal pain. And the first thing I ask myself is, can this be a life-threatening condition like an obstruction, ischemia, or perforation? So I go through that checklist, similar to how we go through the checklist for chest pain, thinking of PE, dissection, and ACS. But once I approach abdominal pain, I take an anatomical approach. And here, we're told it's in the left lower quadrant. So I ask myself, what's located in the left lower quadrant? And something that comes to mind is diverticulitis. Um, Then we get additional history that he has 30-pound weight loss over the past two months. And so that makes me think, can this be, for example, chronic mesenteric ischemia? Or is the abdominal pain so severe that it, it's not allowing this gentleman to actually eat food? It does make the point that it's not changing with eating or drinking. Um, we're also told that he had the flu two months ago. So I'm trying to determine, is there a way I can link a viral syndrome to the abdominal pain the patient is experiencing now, similar to how we link you know, diarrhea to Guillain-Barre syndrome, for example. Nothing is coming to mind right now. Then we look at his medical history, and we see that he has poorly controlled uh, diabetes. And um, poorly controlled diabetes, that would make him vulnerable to infections, for example. Um, 
and he has a smoking history, about 15-pack year smoking history with a chronic cough. So we go back to Stewart's terrific differential diagnosis for chronic cough, uh, which included GERD, asthma variant, um, reactive airway disease, and postnasal drip. But we'll add to that lung cancer. And with the weight loss, could he have underlying uh, pulmonary malignancy, which may have um, which may have uh, metastasized? So bottom line is, I think I would summarize by saying the abdominal pain. You definitely want to uh, approach it. I think a, a great way to approach it is anatomically. Um, and here we're dealing with the left lower quadrant, which makes me think of the uh, descending sigmoid colon and pathology in that area. Uh, with the weight loss, it just goes back to what we were discussing in the previous case. It makes you concerned for a inflammatory process, whether it be malignant, infection, or autoimmune. And its smoking history may increase or increase the likelihood of a, of a cancer. But, but let me pause right there and ask Matt and Paul, um, any other thoughts you want to share with the, the listeners? No, I mean, impressive as always. Like, I, I, I think that's a spectacular breakdown, and I would be presumptuous to try to add anything to it. I actually had a question for you, if that's okay. Please, of course. Um, is that I tend to anchor this, and I don't know why, but the A1C of 15.8 and not taking yeah. pads. Like, that's just kind of out yeah. there, and we don't know what type of diabetes this is. But does that change or alter the way that you think about this case at all? So, so I will tell you something. I didn't want to mention a rare diagnosis up front, um, but I took care, and, and this wouldn't fit the bill completely, but th this is actually a really cool story. So uh, a couple months ago, I had read a clinical problem, clinical problem solving exercise on NEGM, and it was a patient with uh, diabetes who came in with hepatomegaly, right upper quadrant pain, and ended up having glycogenic hepatopathy. Matt, you can definitely edit this out, but um, but it was just like interesting. And then fast forward two weeks later, we have a patient who presents to the hospital, ends up having glycogenic hepatopathy. This is infuriating. And, <laughs> and we consulted the GI service for that specific question, and it ended up being the diagnosis. And and really, like it, I was just lucky to have read that case ahead of time. But the left lower quadrant is not consistent with that. Yeah. The poorly controlled diabetes, though, it just makes you wonder that this guy is vulnerable to some kind of um, infection, uh, just given that he has uh, poorly controlled diabetes. And then one other point I wanna make is that not all causes of abdominal pain are within the abdomen. So there's extra um, peritoneal causes of abdominal pain, like pneumonia, pulmonary embolism, or even systemic conditions like adrenal insufficiency, hypercalcemia, um, and, I wish Stuart was online, but maybe we can like blame Lyme too for abdominal pain. I'm not sure about that, but <laughs> but he's off, so we can't verify that fact. <laughs> Even if he was here, I'm not sure we could verify that. So <laughs> did you did you have anything to add to the differential here? I I don't. Not 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 yet. Not yet. Any additional thoughts from your end? Well, I guess maybe the uncontrolled diabetes. I mean, someone presenting with uncontrolled diabetes and abdominal pain, I think about diabetic ketoacidosis. But like you said, we don't know what what type of uh, we don't know what this this person has, and you know, the weight loss that could be from uncontrolled diabetes as well. Right. Yeah, and this tends to be the type of detail that I hang on to, and tends out to be futile, almost like say taxidermy. But like, it, I'd be nice to know when that A one C was drawn. You know, if we know what type of diabetes that he actually was diagnosed with and, and why he's not taking medications, I feel are all, I feel like it's going to end up being germane, but I'm often wrong about things like this. 
No, I, I want to say I overlook that. And those are two terrific thoughts. Seriously, like DKA and just uncontrolled diabetes explaining some of his symptoms. All right. So you guys ready for the next clue? Please. Yeah, let's get a physical okay. exam. Exactly. Yeah. So we got a physical exam. So his vitals, his temperature is 101.7, BP uh, 166 over 82, heart rate 109, and respiratory rate 20. On exam of the heart, he's tachycardic without murmurs. And on exam of the lungs, he has bibasal or crackles and pain with deep inspiration. On exam of the abdomen, his abdomen is soft, tender in the upper quadrants and left lower quadrant with some rebound tenderness. His extremities are within normal limits and his skin is without rashes or lesions. Okay, so th this is helpful. Um, what we see here is that, that the patient has, has a fever uh, and that would be consistent with an inflammatory process. He's also tachycardic. Um, the, the absence of murmurs is important because now I'm trying to link the bibasilar crackles and the, the pain with deep breathing with the abdominal uh, tenderness. Because if, for example, he had endocarditis causing heart failure, you can get hepatic congestion. And you can also get uh, congest congestion of the intestines that can lead to um, abdominal pain. So I think what this exam does, it, it sort of it sort of adds a new problem within our problem representation. And that's um, the, the bibasilar crackles. Not all crackles is um, you know pulmonary edema, but that may be the case here. Um, you can also think about pneumonia as causing crackles. The fact that it's bibasilar, I think um, with the fever, it probably makes pneumonia more likely than, than heart failure. Heart failure and fever, you can think in the setting of thyrotoxicosis or endocarditis. And his abdominal pain is no longer just focal to the left lower quadrant. It's sort of diffuse. So what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to explain the inflammation, the, the bibasilar crackles and pain with breathing, and the abdominal pain. And one way to do that is through heart failure. Um, and another way to do that is if you think of some type of autoimmune condition causing a pleuritis, um, leading to pleuritic chest pain when he breathes in, uh, in addition to causing his, um, his abdominal pain. So, so I think to summarize with this information, it points us towards inflammation. It tells us that there's pathology within the lungs and maybe the heart is a localization of that pathology leading to pulmonary edema and congestion of the liver and the intestines. That's one way to piece this together, uh, but we'll need more information, I think. Paul and Matt. This reminded me the temperature of 101.7. I had written it down, but we, we, I forgot to bring it up before the physical exam, the flu, you know, they, they had this flu two months ago. That could be, right. so we didn't really, you know, how do we incorporate that is, is my thinking here. Like, was there some sort of infectious hit, uh, that, that happened and, and now we're dealing with the sequelae of that. Is there um, I don't know, was there some infection and now the patient has like a, a pericarditis or a myocarditis or, um, or did they have some sort of infectious insult to the bowel or the lungs, whatever? 
Right. And this, I mean, this fits a little bit in with my illness script for pancreatitis too, by the way, I throw in there because I think everything is pancreatic, but you have someone with febrile, you can certainly have um, a little bit of more like a fusion type picture uh, with severe pancreatitis and then febrile and then a few abdominal tenderness, including the rebound tenderness. So I, I don't, it, that doesn't tie together quite as nicely as the stuff that you guys do. That would also be on my list of things to potentially worry about. Uh, Paul, I think that's a great thought because you can get ARDS explaining right. his pulmonary pathology and he, um, you know, and then the pancreatitis explaining his abdominal pathology. And then, Matt, to your point, I think myocarditis is a fantastic thought. Like he had some kind of viral syndrome, and now he's leading to pathology of the heart, causing the pulmonary edema and maybe um, hepatic and intestinal congestion and possibly pleuritis. You know, and recently I, in NEJM, I think a few months ago, they, they showed that patients who have influenza are predisposed or are in, at increased vulnerability of actually having an MI. I don't know if yeah, you guys yeah, thought yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, Great paper, yeah. It, it, because oftentimes these patients would come to their doctors and they would blame the flu, but in reality, the flu set them up through that inflammatory process for the ACS. But I'm really loving myocarditis here, and I think pancreatitis is a great thought. All right, you guys ready for the next clip? Yes. So you get a chest X-ray uh, that shows a left lower lobar consolidation. Okay, so so that's helpful. I mean, um, I think, you know, that, that could explain the patient's fever. Could he have a simple pneumonia? It just wouldn't explain enough of his abnormalities because the, the left, we, we did talk about extra, um, you know, abdominal causes of abdominal pain. So could the left lower lobe pneumonia be irritating the, the diaphragm in the left upper quadrant causing some pain there? It is possible, but I just wouldn't expect a bacterial pneumonia to lead to 30 pounds weight loss and diffuse abdominal pain. So I like the idea of this viral uh, syndrome preceding pathology potentially of the heart. I don't think a community-acquired pneumonia would explain all his symptoms. And I think we go back to our differential diagnosis including myocarditis, including pancreatitis, um, and, and pathology of the heart. Yeah. The, the heart's not big on the chest X-ray, which, which always makes me think away from, you know, t t like if someone has rip-roaring like pericarditis or myocarditis, usually the heart has an odd appearance on chest X-ray. It'll be, it, the silhouette will be enlarged or just abnormal. Yeah. I don't know what else to add here other than other than that, I, I think certainly this is more than just your run of the mill, you know, it, they're calling this a like a left lower lobe infiltrate, but community acquired pneumonia, we don't see patients with all these symptoms. I totally agree. So our next clue is that you get some labs. So his white count is 12.5 with a diff of 68 PMNs, 6.2 lymphocytes, 12.2 monocytes, and 17.4 eosinophils. His hemoglobin is 9.5 and his platelet count is 645. His ESR is 68, his CRP is 17.6, and otherwise his serum electrolytes, creatinine, and LFTs are normal. So then uh, with these set of labs, I think what's striking is the patient's eosinophilia, uh, and we'll get to that later and, and share a schema for it. Um, you also have an anemia, which is not uncommon in the setting of inflammation, and his elevated platelet count is probably reflective of reactive thrombocytosis. His, his ESR and CRP are elevated. So the weight loss 
the um, fever, tachycardia, thrombocytosis, elevated ESR and CRP are all consistent with inflammation. So this verifies that instinct that we had. Now, the eosinophilia is finally we have something to hang our hat on and try to create a, great, a, a better differential diagnosis. Um, the, the way I approach eosinophilia is I ask, I ask myself, is this primary? Like, is it a primary hematologic malignancy? Is it secondary to, um, you know, a list of causes, which I'll comment on? Or is it idiopathic and the, the etiology is hyper eosinophilic syndrome? So the secondary causes of eosinophilia include neoplasm, um, you know, solid malignancy can have eosinophilia. Probably the most common cause in the United States is some type of alert allergies. Uh, worldwide, it's going to be um, probably parasites and infectious etiologies. Um, other causes include sarcoidosis can cause an eosinophilia, adrenal insufficiency can cause an eosinophilia, um, and uh, yeah. But we, we know he didn't travel outside of San Diego. Nevertheless, I would, with his weight loss, I would probably still send a stool ONP to see if we can, if we are dealing with the parasite. Adrenal insufficiency usually doesn't cause this degree of um, eosinophilia, but I think it's still important to, um, to send and test for. Um, and we weren't told that he has a history of any particular um, allergy that um, could be causing this eosinophilia. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to step back and go back to his uh, sort of salient features. And this includes that left lower lobe consolidation, which we labeled as a pneumonia. And so how can we explain pulmonary pathology and eosinophilia? One way to explain that is through eosinophilic pneumonia. And um, so that can be a potential unifying diagnosis here. An another uh, possibility is sarcoidosis can cause um, an eosinophilia. So, so that I think uh, is also on the um, differential diagnosis. Back to what you were saying earlier on the first case, Paul, when you when we were thinking about some of the pulmonary renal syndromes, we talked about, uh, we didn't talk about this, but eosinophilic, granulomatosis, polyangitis. I think EGPA, this this class, I mean, he also has a cough. Uh, we, we, didn't, we didn't discuss his, his cough in detail. But could he have a vasculitis like EGPA causing his eosinophilia and chronic inflammation? That is possible. So the, the next series of tests will be to address causes of eosinophilia. And I think that will help narrow the differential diagnosis. So you would get, I, I would send an HIV, a stool ova and parasite, an AM cortisol, and I would send the ANCA serologies um, and a UA Though eGPA doesn't commonly cause, um, you know, hema, hematuria like MPA and GPA. So that's sort of where I am right now um, in my thinking. Yeah. And this, I, I think the adrenal insufficiency thing for this case specifically less seems less likely because we have the, the patients more hypertensive and uh, they told us, they tell us the electrolytes are normal. I know that doesn't necessarily rule it out, but I think like you're saying, like the the eosinophilic pneumonias, the sarcoid or the EGPA, something like that might be higher on the differential diagnosis at this point. 
And I, I think leukemias and lymphomas can cause uh, eosinophilic eosinophilia as well. Um, and then certain certain environmental exposures, which we don't really, we don't. I don't know what I don't know what he's around in San Diego, but we don't have anything yet, unless I'm forgetting that that makes me think. And I don't know how we tie your uncontrolled diabetes to this, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's going to be another one of those red herrings, like the stupid taxidermy. <laughs> but I, I, was, I was relieved. I was starting to be concerned that HIV testing was passe. So yeah, you have someone with a flu-like illness who starts losing a ton of weight and now comes in sort of frankly inflamed. Like I, I think sort of just broadly, uh, that would be before seeing the eosinophilia probably way at the top of my differential, I would think. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to explain like, how is he, because his, his initial complaint was left lower quadrant pain. Right. So yeah. can you have infiltration of that segment of the colon with eosinophils? Possibly. It's not part of my illness script or my file for EGPA as far as like eosinophilic gastroenteritis. But that's something that is sort of in the back of my mind because that was really his presenting complaint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, we're, now, now we have like findings that we love talking about. So we're focused on them. You know, we're, we're sort of, ignoring his presenting complaint of left lower quadrant pain because we have other salient features that we're trying to explain, but we shouldn't forget that. And we should try to integrate that into our problem representation and our ultimate unifying diagnosis. But at this point, like my, the three terms I would put into Google would be left lower, uh, I'm sorry, left lower lobe consolidation, eosinophilia, and inflammation. I wonder what that would. Uh, Can I do that as like. an experiment? <laughs> Can we please? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and then uh, you also had on the differential like inflammatory bowel disease. I I can't remember if it has, if that has any sort of like lung involvement uh, classically. To, I I just I don't know it well enough, but. Yeah, it's that 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 disease is um it can definitely cause so much it, in terms of like extraintestinal manifestations. Mm-hmm. I think, and I'm not sure, Matt, but I think it could be associated with an ILD or some kind of interstitial lung pathology, but I would have to look that up. Mm-hmm. But th- I think there are definitely some pulmonary um, manifestations of IBS. Yeah, so I'll, I'll keep that on our differential as well. Paul, can you do the Google search? Uh, yeah, it's not terribly helpful. Um, okay. I see there's actually a PubMed page. Are you sure you guys want me to say this out loud? A yeah. PubMed page that with the first sentence is lymphoma is hard to be diagnosed without exact pathologic evidence. So they like lymphoma. And then there's another, um, but yeah, nothing slam dunk is I guess where I'm going with this. So, so where, where would we go from here? We, we said um, AM cortisol, HIV, stool ONP, um, ANCA serologies, urinalysis. And I, could, please forgive me for being a, a dum-dum. Is there a reason to not do abdominal imaging in this patient with abdominal no. pain and weight loss? No, we would want that. <laughs> okay. I'm just putting that in. <laughs> or am I jumping ahead? Maybe I'm not being too algorithmic. No, that that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I would I, want that. We're, we, we, we don't think to order it, Paul, because it's it's rare that a patient gets admitted without this. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? This patient presents with abdominal pain. Here's the chest x-ray. Like, great. <laughs> thank you. Um <laughs> Also, the CT angiogram was negative. So good news, everybody. <laughs> I'm so glad that you asked that because the next clue, if you guys want to click it, um, is a CT abdomen pelvis. Oh, I thought you were going to say CT angiogram, but I was going to throw you into traffic. Okay. <laughs> so on CT abdomen pelvis, uh, it was noted large ascites with no evidence of cirrhosis or portal hypertension, uh, as well as a nodular omentum without mass or lymphadenopathy. Okay. So, Paul, kudos to you, my friend. Um, the, the CT scan is helpful. So 
we now like have to incorporate this into our problem representation of, of ascites. And the first step in evaluating ascites is to sample the fluid because you want to know, is this going to be a high sag ascites consistent with portal hypertension or a low sag ascites consistent with some type of infiltrative um, etiology like, like cancer? Uh, the, the nodular momentum is helpful as well there. I think that does limit the DDX. It tells you that there's something probably infiltrating the momentum like malignancy. Back to your point, um, Matt, I think cancer is definitely on the, on the DDX. Another thing we have to be concerned for is tuberculosis with the nodular momentum. Um, can this be a TB? So this CT scan would prompt me to go back and ask the patient some questions. For example, does he have a history of latent tuberculosis? Has he ever traveled outside of the United States to a region endemic with uh, tuberculosis? So at, at this juncture, the way I'm framing this patient is, how old is he, Anna? He's 50. 50. Got it. So 50-year-old gentleman here with inflammation, weight loss, left lower lobe consolidation, um, large volume ascites with no evidence of cirrhosis on exam or imaging. And it doesn't seem like there was any evidence on a laboratory because his platelet count is 645. Yeah. So I think the, the next step, so right now what I'm concerned for is a malignancy and I would obtain a history to see if this gentleman has been exposed to um, tuberculosis. But we also have to explain the eosinophilia Schistosomiasis can cause a non-serotic portal hypertension leading to uh, ascites and eosinophilia, but not so much, to my knowledge, the, the nodular omentum. So my next step, um, in addition to asking Matt and Paul, would be to sample the ascites fluid, send an ADA for tuberculosis, send all the stains for atypical infections, um, and also send cytology to see if there is um, an underlying uh, malignancy. Sometimes biopsying um, you know, tissue would also be quite helpful to evaluate for underlying malignancy or infection. Yeah, I, I am wildly excited about your TB idea, I have to tell you, because that, that actually fits nicely with a lot of the history. So you have the cough, you have sort of flu-like symptoms, you have the weight loss, you have now evidence of some sort of infiltrative disease, um, and TB can do anything. So it's I'm... I, I, I'm super excited about that, which means that is not the correct answer. So I'm sorry, Reza. Um, <laughs> yeah. Wado, what are you thinking? I, I don't have much. I don't have much to add. I think we should go to the next. I think we should go to All the right. next case. Uh, next. Yeah. Clue. Oh God, no more cases. I can't. Matt, I can't do any more cases tonight. I'm emotionally Matt. fragile right now. <laughs> I, I have to go watch Haunting of Hill House. <laughs> I can't <laughs> recover. <laughs> soothe myself. <laughs> Seriously, that that's really sad when that soothes me, Paul. Uh, all right. So you get a pretty good infectious workup back. So blood and sputum cultures are negative. A serum AFB is, or sorry, a sputum AFB is negative times three. HIV, Hep B, and Hep C are negative. CEA and CA199 are negative. And the peritoneal fluid, you get a sample. The SAG is 0.1. Total protein is 5.2. The white count is um, 6,300 with 53% SAGs. 30% lymphocytes, 10% monocytes, and 5% eosinophils. The ADA is 18.4, which is normal. And the MTB culture is negative. Okay. Thank you for all this information, Hannah. 
Um, so I'm, I'm glad they sent an HIV, which was negative. Yeah. The, 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 the sputum being negative for AFB does not rule out extrapulmonary tuberculosis. Um, and then the, the HIV is negative. The, the tumor markers, I don't, I don't know what their sensitivities are. I, I don't find it strikingly helpful to be honest with you. Maybe, uh, when you diagnose the cancer and to follow the disease and treatment effectiveness of treatment, it might be helpful. The SAG, I don't think Onan would make the mistake of missing a one before the point one. So that's an extremely low SAG. Yep. And the 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 um, leading differential diagnoses for such a low SAG would be cancer. And in regions where TB is endemic would also include tuberculosis. Um, the, the white blood cell is quite elevated. And we're looking for the... 50% of of 6000 is is 3000 for the for the uh, neutrophils so he would meet um you know the the criteria or potentially he would meet the criteria for peritonitis right his, his ADA came back um normal while this test is specific i'm not sure what the sensitivity of ADA is for tuberculosis if it's that's something I would look up. I would just type in what's the test characteristics of ADA for tuberculosis. The culture being negative, again, doesn't um, completely rule out TB. Uh, and we're seeing that he has 30% lymphocytes. Sometimes to diagnose tuberculosis, you actually need a biopsy to look for the organism. So with all this set of data, I don't think our DDX changes too much. I'm still concerned for cancer and I'm still concerned for tuberculosis. And my next step might be, um, you know, I, I would send the cytology off the CITES to see if I get an answer. If not, maybe going after the the peritoneum or the uh, the omentum yeah. to, 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 to study it and see if the, if it stains for tuberculosis, if it cultures for TB, and if there's any malignant cells on that. So here we're, we're dealing with um, a low SAG ascites, and so we're not dealing with portal hypertension. This suggests some type of like uh, infiltrative or inflammatory process uh, causing fluid to accumulate within the peritoneum, like cancer and tuberculosis. Great. And Reza, just going back to the start, so we have the the bewildering chest imaging from a million years ago. It feels like with the left lower lobe process. <laughs> yeah. how, how does that does that change any things the way that you're thinking about with the differential? Because now we seem very sort of abdominally focused, which to my mind appropriately so. But does the left lower lobe infiltrate reorder your differential, confirm, refute, or or make you change the way that you think about any of this? Um, you know, it, it it makes me wonder if that can represent the focus of pathology, whether it be cancer. We don't expect. We don't often see TB in the lower lobe. We expect it more in the, the upper lobe. But um, it could just be true, true, and unrelated. Uh, but we'll, we'll find out, uh, Paul. As of right now, I want to include it into my problem representation. I really want to try to explain it with one diagnosis. It could end up being that this guy um, has poorly controlled diabetes, has a pneumonia. But right now, what's most striking is this ascites and is the nodular omentum that we have to try to explain. And, and the eosinophilia, if it's actually present. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> All right. You guys ready for the next clue? All right. Uh, so the next clue is that his symptoms don't improve with broad spectrum antibiotics. So um, that that is somewhat helpful, you know. With with <laughs> sorry, with like 
with TB, um, like for example, if this guy was given, uh, this patient was given fluoroquinolone, Yeesh. it would, um, you know, imp- it would it would help treat that because fluoroquinolone partially treats mycobacterium right. tuberculosis. Um, but maybe we say this is that we we know this isn't a common bacterial etiology, and the question becomes here: Are we dealing with something infectious? So, Matt, I just go back to the top three, right? malignancy, infection, autoimmune. I put autoimmune on the side and I'm worried about some kind of infection or cancer, right? And I think I still would want to see the cytology on the ascites. Um, Potentially going after a biopsy specimen, TB, and you know, honestly, like if maybe while I'm speaking, someone can Google what the test characteristics of ADA is, because if that is quite sensitive, uh, the, the negative ADA and the negative culture would probably reduce the post-test probability of, of tuberculosis. Are we missing any any other infections, Matt, Paul, that uh, we should consider here and in this gentleman? Yeah, I mean, for acute, I, I know Legionella can cause can can cause stomach and but but I don't think that would have anything to do with the omentum. Uh, I think I, I can't think of an infection that would that would involve that would also involve the omentum and cause ascites, uh, other than, like you said, tuberculosis. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's a good thought. Legionella, definitely, if you're, if you're worried about, you know, gastrointestinal symptoms, hyponatremia, pneumonia, um, but maybe the, 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 the duration might be a little long for that. Right. Um, is there anything else that comes out, Paul, any, like if we want to explain long ascites, Nodular omentum, someone from, where? where is he from? He's from San Diego. We San don't, Diego. We don't have a travel history or a birth, like a place of birth, so we don't know. Right. But there- No recent travel, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we know that he hasn't traveled recently. Um, I'll also say that the sensitivity for the ADA is 0.93 or so 93%. 93%, okay. Yeah, yeah it's actually pretty sensitive and pretty specific, so that, yeah, yeah so we got trubs. Okay. <laughs> also, just let's not forget the negative predictive value of me liking a diagnosis is <laughs> extremely high. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I I really don't have more thoughts besides saying that I'm I, I'm most concerned for like a cancer or infection. The no, I don't know if I'm you know anchoring too much on this nodular omentum, but what is my confidence in my final diagnosis right now? Fifteen percent. <laughs> the last maybe the maybe it's going to be one of those ones where the last clue is just like gives slam down sure. whatever the, the biopsy is. would be great yeah oh, you guys biopsy. the last clue sure is a biopsy uh it's serum <laughs> studies um so you guys can go ahead and click um so the serum strongoloides is negative <laughs> oh my god uh, my, uh, serum igm and igg uh coccidioidomycosis is positive uh, and the peritoneal coxy is positive ah uh, forgot so for Reza, fungal we Reza. getting a little bit coxy we had to give you a hard case <laughs> oh gosh i will not honor that hannah i will not <laughs> well, well can i can i say something i i want to applaud Anand for putting together such a terrific case i love this case in part because I got it wrong. Uh, but when we do the cognitive autopsy here, like it all makes sense. San Diego, pulmonary opacification, um, some kind of peritoneal pathology, disseminated coccidiomycosis would be a terrific diagnosis here. 
And I trained on the West Coast. I should have thought, I should have thought about coxie before tuberculosis. Um, I will say why it was challenging for me to think about coxie. I think if it was just pulmonary pathology with like arthralgias or enodosum, I would have been like, this is coccidiomycosis, you know, because that's part of my illness script. The peritoneal um, involvement, which I'm sure is definitely part of the, the disease process for systemic coccidiomycosis, threw me off because I had two associations with that. And that was primarily tuberculosis and cancer. So when I reflect on this case, it's that I wish I put a little more emphasis on the epidemiology, pulmonary opacification in someone from the West Coast with chronic inflammation should prompt coccidiomycosis. And then thinking, how can coxy, you know, spread throughout the body? Terrific case. Any ID docs listening are just going to be like have oh, pulling their hair out for the last 20 minutes. <laughs> what if you don't have hair to pull out? <laughs> I'm just quietly praying to God my chair of medicine I, does not hear this episode because <laughs> I will be in trouble. Well, listen, I hope Gupreet doesn't hear this episode. <laughs> He's going to disown me. Um, so this patient um, was started on fluconazole for disseminated coxie and rapidly improved uh, and was discharged on posaconazole awaiting follow-up. Uh, the case, so HumanDX gives you some kind of clinical pearls with each of these cases. And the pearl for this case is roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, causing coxie to disseminate all over you. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> So it's actually, Paul, you were spot on with it. The poor diabetes control is significantly associated with an increased risk of disseminated disease and relapse. There you go. Paul, Paul, Paul was on it with both the opacification and the diabetes. Yeah, everything but like the diagnosis and fixing the patient. I am I am killer at so good stuff. We asked the team to do their own cognitive autopsy. They mentioned um, that for them the lesson was not ignoring the inconsistencies, so not ignoring the peripheral eosinophilia. I think they might have originally attributed it all to kind of all the abdominal symptoms to a, a pneumonia, um, and then why is it in the left lower quadrant if it's kind of associated with that? Very good case. Yeah. Well, I think we need to wrap up here yeah. because uh, I am emotionally and mentally <laughs> exhausted. Can we do um, so this like biannually? I just I don't I don't have <laughs> I don't have the ego with me. I can't. This is <laughs> these human DX editors. They are they are sharp folks. <laughs> these cases are really hard. Yeah, uh, Reza, do you have any final kind of take home points for us or thoughts? I, I definitely do. I think that. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about arriving at the correct diagnosis, unless you arrive at the correct diagnosis, and that's what it's all about. <laughs> right. What it is, it's the journey to the final diagnosis. And I think we had a terrific discussion here. And I just want to highlight some of the, the points we mentioned. And that included um, an approach to abdominal pain, um, an approach to eosinophilia, Trying to Matt trying to link the the viral syndrome that preceded the patient's abdominal pain through myocarditis. Um, Paul reminding us that pancreatitis can definitely cause ARDS and cause all those symptoms this patient has. And then I think something I also want to highlight here is just like you know the the most challenging part of going through a case is knowing what's signal and what's noise. And it's always easy in retrospect saying that oh I should have put more weight on that. Um, but in reality, we, we live and we learn. And I, I think that um, we learned a lot from this case. I really enjoyed the, the process. Enjoyed it all the way up to the final diagnosis. 
<laughs> Thank you so much, Anna. Yeah, great work. Well, Reza, hopefully our listeners can get something out of looking at your podcast, The Clinical Problem Solvers, these really great diagnostic schema. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. I had a lot of fun. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. There we go. I thought I could make it through. <laughs> Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to Dr. Stephanie Sherman, Zavin Sargassian, Anand Jagannath, John Wong, Dr. Robbie Jiha um, for contributing cases, to myself for producing, and to our social media team, me on Twitter, uh, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Manchu on Facebook. Uh, until next time, I've been Hannah R. Abrams. Thank you, Hannah, for all your great work on, on this episode and the previous one. Seriously, you did an amazing job. Uh, and I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And good night. And Stuart is not here to sign off. Good night, Stuart. <laughs> Good night, Stuart. Good night, Stuart. I think I think the question that we we could have asked ourselves that might have made us think of uh, was just like okay what uh what are the big like buckets of infections like we cuz we were talking about TB but we talked about bacterial we for, we just completely ignored to some extent fungal and viral like we didn't think it was we talked a little bit about viral we just forgot to mention fungal and i think if we had reza you might have got it you know yeah I, right i yeah what well, i just never think of bit. fungal infections unless like someone's on antibiotics for two weeks and they don't get better <laughs> then i'm just like yeah, is this right. fungal did i should i put them on that yeah and that was the softball pitch they gave us i think we just sort of interpreted it sideways which like started broad spectrum didn't get better so like that was the the big screaming hint that we just we sort of kind of glossed past a little bit I, I feel like this should be a lost episode. I'm just going to put my vote in now.